right, so kicking this thing off, I wanted to start out with uh, how to not get sick on an airplane. Because this year, I think both of us have some traveling coming up. This guy says he gets sick every time he goes home for Christmas, and he's pretty sure it's the three to five hours he spends on a flying Petri dish of germs. So here are the rules of not getting sick on an airplane. Number one, you want to hydrate, drink water, and use saline spray. Number two, you want to clean your hands with alcohol-based hand sanitizer. You want to use disinfecting wipes. You want to avoid the seat back pockets at all costs, like the magazine pocket. People do horrible things in there and it doesn't get cleaned. So you want to you avoid that. And That's then, where everyone hides their germs. Exactly. And then open your air vent above you and aim it so it passes just in front of your face. And it says filtered airplane air can help direct airborne contagions away from you. You want to basically overdose on vitamin C before you get on the plane. So what this guy does is he fills up his water bottle after he goes through security and he does the emergency like pack or like a Z pack of vitamin C, really intense, powerful stuff and chug it as you get on the plane. And then the last thing he said is to take Neosporin and rub it on the inside of your nostrils. And what that does, it'll basically capture the germs before it gets into your system. And so he was like, this is really kind of a gross tip, but it's something I do and I swear by. He's like, I fly once a week. And this is like the most important tip is Neosporin on the inside of your nose. Huh. What, what about vapor rub? I don't know. I'd have, to, I'd have to look that up to see. I didn't know what the science was behind it, and I'm not sure he does either. But he got it from some hack tip guy, and uh, it seems to be working for him. Yeah, I know Neosporin works pretty awesome. Anytime I've ever had anything and used it, it's like within like a day, it's like already healed up. Right. Makes you feel like Wolverine or something. So yeah, I'm, I don't do several of those tips, but I haven't flown in a couple of years now, but um, I'm definitely going to yeah. try those out. Yeah, it's probably been a couple of years. When is the last time? I think when we like flew out north for something, some sound iron related thing. Oh Yeah. He said, try to avoid the tray as well, like the, the tray that fl flips down. It's apparently doesn't really get cleaned. Hopefully things have changed a little bit with the, uh, the pandemic. Lots of things, lots of things get ignored, you know? Just be like, what about Bob? Just like wear gloves everywhere you go. <laughs> Just go ah. full, has, full hazmat suit. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Boom. Can't, go. can't take any chances. Have you read the book Steal Like an Artist? No, I've heard of it. Okay, so we talked about uh, Austin Kleon's third book last last episode, so I wanted to bring his first book into the limelight. And basically, he has 10 chapters. The first one is Steal Like an Artist. He says he doesn't mean steal as in plagiarize, skim, or rip off, but study, credit, remix, mashup, and transform. He said creative work builds on what came before, and thus nothing is completely original. Don't wait until you know who you are to start making things. You have to start doing the work you want to be doing, and you have to immerse, internalize, and even dress like the person you aspire to be. You don't have to look like your heroes. You want to see like your heroes. He said, go beyond imitation to emulation. That brought me to an article called Imitate, Then Innovate. And this guy basically talks about how we used to have such an emphasis on apprenticeships, and I think the composer community still does to some extent where you apprentice under 
you know, a professional doing the work and you kind of learn the tactics and techniques from them. And then you can start applying it to your own work. The more we imitate others, the faster we can discover our unique style. In the entertainment world, there's a long lineage of comedians who tried to copy each other, failed, and then became great. Johnny Carson tried to copy Jack Benny, but failed and won six Emmys. David Letterman tried to copy Johnny Carson, but failed and became one of America's great television hosts. And then Conan O'Brien said, It's our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. Uh, so what do you what do you think about that? Like trying to be like someone you respect, trying to to do work like them and failing is kind of what ends up making you different. Honestly, I agree with that 100 percent. Like your boy Conan, your boy Conan. Yeah, I think. OK, if you like playing basketball, you see Michael Jordan. He becomes like your staple of like, I want to be that. Sure. That's like the your gold standard. He is like a target. Okay, my goal is to at least like shoot for that and get as close as I can. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, like I was the same, like, you know, any anything that I ever got into, I mean, like with like even like first learning music, you know, you learn covers of bands because you're like, all right, well, I don't I don't I don't know really how to play. Right. I don't smoke on the water. Smoke on the water. Come on, man. (laughs) Dude, don't pretend like that was Iron Man. Iron Man, dude. (laughs) Well, actually, yeah, smoke on the water. I think everyone could figure out pretty pretty quickly. And show your mom. She doesn't care about that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, No, it would be like just finding something that like, oh, that's cool. Like that inspires me to want to learn something. Then using them as sort of like, okay, that's where I want to try to be. Like, because I was like, all right, I want to try and learn this song. And then, you know, from there, you hopefully build some momentum off of learning something like mm-hmm. even when i was uh you know this isn't music related but when i was getting into playing like like billiards and stuff you'd find players who you're like oh like he's a really good player and then you study them yeah you, know, you use them start as, like stealing their tricks yeah you know like you you watch like how you know how they hold a cue like how they bridge okay is there different types of bridges like okay you know or like like all the little aspects of their playing Mm-hmm. watch them you watch like how they play around the table okay you know you like you start to see patterns and everything and the same thing with music like you start to like study individuals whether whatever field they're in and there you start to see patterns and i think that's one of the things i've like I'm, i i can't retain a lot of information i'm not a smart guy but i think i have the ability of recognizing patterns pretty well mm-hmm. and and uh for me that's what i've tried to do as far as like whenever I learn things is just like immerse myself in it and kind of use that as sort of the benchmark of like trying to learn something within there and then from there you start to experiment and I think it's the same thing whether you're just learning covers and then eventually you're like oh okay like I can play all these different songs now you have all this information to work with then trying to kind of put your own thing together whether it's not great at first it doesn't matter it's just then you, you're you're working a different part of your brain. You're not just like learning and then trying to get like the mechanic aspects of it. Now you're flexing your creativity because now you have all these other thoughts and things going on in your brain. So then you're using your, I don't know, I always forget. It's like left brain, right brain, which one's the creative, which one's the analytical. I always forget. Yes, the right brain creative. Yeah. Yeah. So then now you're flexing that and you're like, oh, okay, cool. All right, let's do that. So totally. it's, it's, it's completely using a different side of your brain, but it's like you need the information to then get creative with it so it's like i i totally agree as far as like imitation like you know some people might look at it as like oh you're you know you're doing that but you let's say 
kind of like what we were talking about before, like on one of the last podcasts regarding like, oh, like what would this composer do here? Or if you're trying to like get out of a creative rep, like what would this person do? Like you can use that as just a springboard, but then, mm-hmm. okay, well, what this person wouldn't do is add this. That's where you're now bringing in your own perspective. Right. And then it starts to evolve, you know, like you can, like people probably hear famous music all the time. And it's like, you know, they could have been like, oh, I was inspired by this little like drum groove from the Beatles, but then the Beatles wouldn't put this behind it or layer this or do, you know, then I got this sound trick from this other person. And that's where it becomes your own. It's just this big amalgamation of like all these influences. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what he talks about. He goes on to talk about Quentin Tarantino. And he says, when people look at Quentin, they see a mad creative with a singular talent for making original movies. But Tarantino's originality begins with imitation. He's famous for replicating and building upon scenes from other movies. And he once said, I steal from every single movie ever made. He talks about like how how Quentin Tarantino has watched so many old movies and studied so many movies and TV shows and how he just kind of like picks a little bit from from things and like he's very inspired by things he watches yeah and and that's the thing and it, it like you can probably sometimes pick up on that you could probably watch a movie and be like oh they were you know like uh for example joker the one that came out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that you could tell like and there's a lot of people saying like there's a lot of taxi driver oh, inspiration yeah. and like old you know scorsese inspiration and stuff i mean they even had robert de niro in the movie Right. So there's a lot of, you know, inspiration from that and just like old movies from back then, but it's still, you know, different story, completely different, you know, but there's a lot of kind of uh, maybe you'd call like a little like homage to them or, you know, a little mm-hmm. tribute. Like it's, it's like one of those things, like when you're writing a song and you do a little thing in there and you're like, that's a little, you know, little, little nod to my inspirations growing up and stuff like that. A little quote. Like, yeah, and it, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything wrong. It's just kind of like a little tribute to your inspirations and, and influences, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, yeah, when it's like, okay, now they're going to come after you and and start trying to get money from you, that you messed up. You went too far. <laughs> right. You, 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 you just stayed on the hot coals. You didn't just tread off. You just hung there too long. Yeah. So he says, through imitation, you can create your own apprenticeship. Uh, I know a painting coach who tells her students to listen for resistance in the imitation process. She says that your authentic artistic voice shines in the delta between your own style and the style of the painter you want to emulate. So I think this is a cool point because the internet allows you to kind of choose your mentors or choose your apprenticeship, like who you're apprenticing under. Yeah. Okay. I think that's what I was trying to think of like mentor. It's like a uh, a mentor that they don't even know that you're mentoring them. Yeah. It's like, yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that thing that we we've talked about where it's just like, just go with it and try it. Like just be in the flow. Like that's the hardest thing I think is just getting in that flow state of where everything is just rolling. Right. Like that, like when the muse hits and everything's just on point, like there's like nothing better, you know, like I've had times where I would just be so in a flow state for like, hours and then i would almost kind of like come out of it like a deep meditation and be like what is this i have in front of me like this like crazy like multi-harmony thing and there's like all this stuff going on and i'm like and and then you listen back to it like years later and you're like how the hell did i write that yeah yeah you know people like oh man that that thing was cool like what were like what were you thinking and you're just like i don't know like i was just going with it like you're just in the process you're just like you're looking at 
your hands and you're listening and you're just like playing with stuff and you're just like, what about this? What about this? What about this? It's like being in this like crazy deep thought and you're just like on a tangent by yourself. It's like really cool when it happens. Yeah. And then you, you pop up and look up, you're like, I'm starving. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> I have to use the bathroom. <laughs> um, okay. So back to steal like an artist. So number three, he says, write the book you want to read. It's important to do what you want to do and insert your take on things of art. And so I think the same thing goes for music. You should write or compose the music that you want to hear. Totally. I think some of the best moments in composing is when I hear something I like and then I hear something else I like from a different artist or composer and I kind of combine those into its own unique remix. It's like an inspirational mashup. Exactly. Uh, So number four, he says, use your hands. It's important to step away from the screen and immerse in actual physical work. Computers have robbed us of the feeling that we're actually making things. One of the guys I follow, Nathan, his name's Nathan Barry, and he says, if you work with your mind, you should try to find a way to rest with your hands. And I like that quote a lot. Yeah, especially if you're trying to write music on an instrument that's not really your main instrument. Like I get that way sometimes when I'm on a piano and I think sometimes I forget to just like grab an instrument that I'm more familiar with uh-huh. because it, it's a little bit easier to kind of come up with some melodies or maybe like if you're not too familiar on the keyboard like me, you sometimes your hands tend to like go in very similar places. Guitar can be in the same way too for me, but I, I feel a lot more free in in how I kind of come up with melodies and stuff. Right. Yeah. If you're just sitting there and you're just like staring at your computer doing this and you're like, music, come to me. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. For, if you're listening to the podcast, I have my fingers to my temples and I'm staring very <laughs> intensely into the screen. You're meditating. Yeah, it's like a very forceful, angry meditation. Like, come on already. But um, <laughs> but yeah, like always doing something different or even just like tapping your fingers on your desk or I don't know, like any little thing. It's crazy. can just like trigger something, mm-hmm. you know, like have you ever like walked by the washer and, you know, that your washer and dryer, you got, you know, something that's like, do, 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 do. You got like your, <laughs> your uh, laundry room is making beats and you don't even realize it. And you're like, oh, do, 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 do. <laughs> next thing you know, you got a whole track. Boom. Just like that. We got a library for that. It's called Londronium. There you go. Boom. So one of my favorite parts of this book, he says, validation is for parking. He says, nobody's going to give you permission. Nobody's going to welcome you to the club. No one's going to pat you on the head or the back and say, well done. All you can do is keep making the work you want to see in the world. And so that's, uh, that's one of my favorite quotes. Validation is for parking. Yeah, it could because it's like, okay, what someone says, oh, great job. Then what it's over. <laughs> get on the plane, you know, make sure you take your emergencies and try not to get sick and just that's it. So it's all over. No, it's like it, it, it doesn't matter. It's like every time you like you hit sort of like a checkpoint, you're like, hell yeah, this is awesome. It, there's always going to be that like constant. So it's like just keep on moving forward. Keep on keeping on. Um, and then he talks about. It's his job as an artist to gather and absorb things that interest me. So he says, no input, no output. And basically saying like, we're going to go hear a band. We're going to go to the museum. We're going to hang out with some writer friends. We're going to go to a restaurant. We're going to bring in some input into our lives because if we don't, then we have nothing to output. It's a circle. It's a respiratory thing like breathing. You know, you breathe in and you input 
creativity and then you can actually output something special. Yeah. That that's how I feel about like every time we go to Nam. Yeah. I feel like I always leave Nam feeling so invigorated because you're just around all these talented people, whether it's like musicians or developers, you know, like we'll, you know, we have like the dev dinners and we'll be hanging out with the other developers, just like hearing them and talking to them, you know, like there's so many, so many smart people in the industry and people you know, moving the needle. And it's just like, man, like you come back feeling just like, I just want to like work on music and like get, you know, better myself. And, and just what, like, what can I do to like try to take myself to the next level? And, you know, and just being around other people, like motivated people, you know, it, it's like they say, like, you're the company you keep. If you hang around, people are just like, mm, you know, <laughs> what's the point? Yeah. Like, it's just like, you're like, well, I mean, yeah, what is the point? You know, it's kind of, you know, you, you got to hang around people that are, also doing stuff too whether they're creative or or whatever your whatever industry that you're into just being around people like that it's very inspiring you know and because then yeah you come back and you're like all right cool let's do it like i want to you know work on some stuff if you're just like always constantly trying to like make some crazy ambitious thing that's out of your reach you know it's like maybe you're just not really inspired or you don't know exactly what you want to do who knows Sure. And it's also fun to be around people who are optimistic and, and think bigger than you. And that's one of the things that's fun about Nam is you, you see these massive companies that have gotten built. And then you see these small developers who are getting bigger or small hardware makers who are getting bigger. And they have these massive ideas, you know, these like really cool, interesting ideas and takes on music. And you can kind of just combine those and it kind of it kind of opens your mind to the possibilities. One thing, like when I moved to Los Angeles, I met so many full-time musicians. And that was like a big kind of light bulb for me at the time because I was working at Starbucks and doing odd jobs and teaching lessons. And I was like, wow, if all of these people can make a full-time living playing guitar or playing piano or whatever, like it's actually possible here to do things that it, that wasn't possible in my previous home. And so just being around like-minded people is definitely helpful. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the mentor and apprenticeship, you were you were doing that too for a while when you were out here, right? Yeah. Yeah, I had multiple multiple internships, multiple apprenticeships out there. Lots of fun, lots of lots of learning. Do you feel like that helped you in a way that you probably couldn't have otherwise? that like then trying to kind of like DIY it and get inspiration from seeing things online, kind of like having that more real world experience. You feel like that helped you in a way that probably wouldn't have elsewhere. Definitely. I think number one, just seeing how a professional goes about a daily schedule and the emails involved and the life lessons of like, okay, we got to set this remote studio up and, oh, we have to go to this studio and record this small orchestra today. And like how they run a calendar, how they communicate with team, how they are looking for the next gig. You know, that was one of the big things that they kind of like were chuckling, but also frustrated about is, you know, 50% of your time is actually spent writing music, which you think mm -hmm. a composer, they're always writing music. And it's like the other 50% is looking up, trying to find your next gig and trying to see what's down the line. And then like the director composer relationship is massive. You know, 
at the end of the day, you are like a contractor or employee for someone else. And so you have to make sure that you're okay with being a pragmatist and working in that, in that function. And then doing an apprenticeship also helps you kind of focus on what you like and, and know what you don't like. So one thing that I did a lot of was orchestration, like finale orchestration, mm-hmm. and I didn't like it. Like I could do it and I was happy to do it because I was happy to be there, but it's not something that I wanted to pursue and like go be a copyist uh, and like kind of take that path further. So it, it definitely allows you to do a wide variety of work and that kind of helps you choose a path. Yeah. Yeah. Doing something is a great way to find out if you like it or not. Yeah. If you, and if you naturally gravitate toward it, if you're naturally good at it or if it's a skill that interests you even if you're not good at it like it's complex and it has a lot of problems and moving parts if if it's like a math equation that you love you will like pick it up really fast and you'll be interested in learning as much as you can about it yeah because you might have that thing where like you you thought you really wanted to do something but there's no better way to figure out if you like it or not than doing it right you know and same thing goes for touring like i you know when i thought i wanted to like be a tour musician you start doing it. And after a while you start to realize like, I don't know, is this really what I want to do? Yeah. Mm, you know, cause at the end of the day, it's like, I always like making music. So it was like, after I like stopped doing the, the touring thing, I just wanted to just have a means to make music whenever I wanted. So that's kind of why I started doing the whole home studio thing, mm-hmm. just starting very small. And then I found I love that. Cause I, I could just go as far as I wanted, you know, cause there's so much information out there. So it's just really a matter of like, just diving in and <laughs> it's a never it ending rabbit hole. Yeah. Yes. An expensive rabbit hole, but it's fun. <laughs> if you want to kill time, find something you like and ours will just dissipate. It's a fun, yeah. It's a fun way to spend your time and money. Yeah. With internships, you don't know what you don't know before you get there. So you think, you know, you might be the, the big fish in your small pond and then you go to LA and work in a studio and you're like, Oh, I didn't know to wrap a cable over under or, Oh, I didn't know how to patch this bay, you know, set up a session before the artist gets there. Don't look this artist in the eyes because they hate when people look them in the eyes. There's all these moving pieces of working in a studio environment or a composer environment that you don't know until you get there. And so, you know, hands-on experience is invaluable. Yeah, just good etiquette and and also being very, very courteous, like you said, of of how people are, because, uh, you know, one of the things is just being respectful. Like if you if you think you're hot shit and you're just <laughs> rolling into town, guns blazing, more than likely everyone's going to not like you. So like, just be, <laughs> just just be very like I think like that's that's something like if you're going to have anything, just have good manners, have sure. good respect, good work ethic. And that stuff goes a long way. Hey, you didn't wrap that cable right. All right, well, this is how you do it. All right, cool. Now you know that. That's in your bag. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, all right, mm-hmm. sorry about that. My bad. You know, right. Rather than having a big ego about, yeah, instead of like, well, well, I've been wrapping cables like this my whole life. <laughs> what do right. you know? All right, well, you're fired. Let me get the next kid in here now. All right. Cool. <laughs> exactly. And then it's over. So, speaking of uh, internships at remote control and such, do you want to talk about this article about Hans Zimmer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I came across this article and uh, we were talking about it for a little bit, but I I thought it was very interesting. It's on this website called Behind the Audio. It's with uh, Michael Levine. And 
I thought it was really interesting. The article is called Why Hans Zimmer Got the Job You Wanted and You Didn't. And I was like, huh, that's savage. a savage. Uh, that is a savage title for a column right there. But because, <laughs> you know, like the, you know, there's certain people I think that you, you see. I mean, I mean, it's like Hans Zimmer. You can't you can't touch it. You know, that dude is a legend. You know, yeah. You know, remote control. He's got a team. There's nothing wrong with that. Plenty of composers that have teams. He has probably the biggest, you know, when it comes to it. Yeah. You know, but but in the in the article, there's a few different things uh, like, you know, why Hans is a visionary. And like one of the things that Hans has always been very noted for is his ability to spot sessions. You know, yeah. like, yeah, he might not be like this virtuoso keyboardist or something, but being able to spot a movie correctly, know what to do, you know, have the balls to to try things that people don't normally do. Sure. Push you know, the envelope. Like, yeah. Like, like having a vision of being like, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's just try it, you know, and just like pushing the boundaries and, you know, but, but the whole, like, um, like if you've seen his um, masterclass, it's not a bunch of him, like showing his like best MIDI mock-ups and sure. how he plays everything in or uses the mod wheel in a specific way. It's mostly him talking about like how he works with directors and mm. spotting the movie and like, really getting an idea of like what the movie needs, you know, that, that is a whole nother talent in itself. And, you know, and another thing that it was mentioning that I thought was interesting was um, Hans is a charmer. And then it was talking about, let me find it. One of the quotes I liked was Elmer Bernstein. He said, the dirty little secret is that we're not musicians. We're dramatists. Hans Zimmer is an outstanding dramatist. And I thought that was so true. Like when you get into composing, you think it's just like, glorious art form and it's actually very pragmatic the director doesn't care what kind of horns you used or like these kind of staccatos uh they're they're looking for like a feel or they're they're mm. listening for a, a feel or a vibe trying to get this project leveled up and so if you can understand the drama of the moment you're in a much better spot yeah, one of the things that I thought I remember reading somewhere, I hope I'm not uh, mis misquoting it, but it was something about like, it's not just him like hanging out and just getting drunk with with directors or like, you know, the, the charmer guy, you know, but it's like, that's kind of part of it too. You know, you're like sitting with the directors and, and talking with them. It's not all them just like, here, watch me, you know, do all this stuff, you know, but it's like, there there's like those multiple aspects of the business. It's not just sitting in a, in a dungeon all day and just like churning out all these you know, piano rolls or something, you know, it's like, he has obviously done something in his career to get to this point. Mm -hmm. You know, it's because, you know, like, like one of the things that mentioned that uh, I believe this guy worked with him. Yeah. You know, having that work ethic, like just, just because like maybe people don't always see behind the scenes doesn't mean that you're not, that you're not necessarily up all night working or, you know, even if you are composing these suites and then you are, you know, passing it off to other people to kind of elaborate on or doing that kind of thing. It's just like, there can be that where people get a little upset. Like, why is, like, why did he get it? Not me. Oh, I could have did a better job. <laughs> Everyone hates winners, right? You hate, you hate Kobe Bryant. You hate LeBron James. You hate yeah. Michael Jordan. Like, uh, everyone, everyone hates the top dog because they're not them. But mm -hmm. in this article, so Michael Levine worked for Hans Zimmer for, it says eight years, but he says, Hans is very aware of what the power structure is, who really makes the decisions. He said, I was fired or more accurately not hired after a trial period from a film because I jumped through hoops for the director 
while not spending enough time figuring out the producer was the actual power. And Hans said, I had failed in a fundamental task determining who was my boss. He was right, and I haven't made that mistake again. He said, so is Hans my favorite film composer? No, he's not even Hans' favorite film composer. And he said, like, he can be rude and condescending and arrogant, but he's exceptionally smart, gifted, accomplished, and hardworking. And here is the hard truth. Outside of a few rare exceptions, the people who are successful in the film business are successful because they deserve to be. They've earned it. Yes, they've been lucky, but everybody gets lucky eventually. The question is what you do when good fortune arrives. And so, yeah, I thought I thought this was a great article is, you know, kind of snarky. Uh, but but when I was in L.A., there there were whispers constantly about, well, Hans Zimmer doesn't write anything. And, you know, I used to be I used to be guilty of saying the same kind of things like, oh, well, he has a team of interns who does all the work for him. And he just like wines and dines people and doesn't actually write any music. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's like same with John Williams write out these things and pass them to an orchestrator you know and mm-hmm. that sort of thing too and it's like there, like there's no harm in that like you know like i've heard like alexander Desplat orchestrates like all, all of his stuff i don't know if that's true or i remember uh, a long time ago seeing a video where he was saying that he you know writes and orchestrates his own music but it's like there's no shame in in having a team uh like if you didn't do the whole thing from the very beginning to the very end like is it not your work anymore And I think the issue with saying like, oh, this person doesn't orchestrate his own music or this person doesn't conduct, like this person doesn't do the mix. It's like, well, he still had the initial idea of composing here and he had the, you know, the initial motive or whatever. Like he spent a lot of time doing this and his name is on it and there was a team around him, but just because he didn't do every single step of the process doesn't mean that he's not the composer. Yeah. That's like getting mad at a band for having a producer in the studio and then them mixing the album. It's like, well, they didn't just produce all of it and record it and mix it and master it themselves. That's not even, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that. It's been happening for many years. It's just, I think, especially with, with just how the industry is, I mean, and you know, we make tools for, composers and musicians and everything and it's like and some of these tools can be used by anyone from like the biggest composers out there to any bedroom producer you know and i think for some people you know maybe they're like well i i use cubase and i have all these libraries yeah and i i like what i make how come i'm not getting that job (laughs) rich and famous i was just watching a youtube video of disclosure which is a like two-person production crew and they made the song latch with sam smith mm-hmm. and he was like he's like this british guy and he's like yeah i kept getting all these compliments about how everything sounded so analog and how much analog gear i must have used and he's like it's all stock logic plugins so i'm gonna break it down for you and he's like i use this stock logic tape delay this stock logic compressor like we just recorded Sam in, we didn't like do any compression or anything on his voice because we had some good gear. And like mm-hmm. the whole thing is just like very stock logic in the box. Yeah. All you got to do is just take your laptop with you, go into this like million dollar studio, get a nice photo of you in that studio <laughs> with your laptop. 
And they're right. like, wow, look at all that. Is that a Neve console? <laughs> Man, like those monitors must be like $20,000. And you're like, well, actually, I was using some really cheap, like, you know, M Audio headphones and my, <laughs> my MacBook Pro. And it's a very expensive prop. All of yeah, this. exactly. It's like, but like that can trick people in, into thinking, you know, all this stuff. It's funny. I actually got an email from someone in regards to some, an album that I put out a few years ago and they were asking about all the synths and stuff. They're like, Oh, I know you, you know, you work with sound iron and, and you guys have a lot of stuff, but like, what synths did you use? And it was actually all like stock uh, logic <laughs> pro nine synths because that's all I had at the time. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have any synth plugins at all. I would just like take MIDI from Guitar Pro and just like move it around on like different tracks in Logic. Like, oh, what if this like arpeggiated line that was supposed to be for guitar sounded on a synth? And then I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then kind of like led me to doing more of that. But yeah, it's all stock. It's all stock stuff. Like I wasn't using any like expensive like software plugins or or even actually I don't even own any hardware since I mean I have like this uh it's a Korg Triton. Sweet. But I don't really use it that much, but it's cool because it's 88 keys. But yeah, even then I didn't even use that. Didn't even use that. So the last thing is I wanted to talk to you about studio optimizations. So purchases that actually improve your workflow. So while you're thinking, I have a few. Uh, I got a standing desk uh, two years ago, and that has been hugely helpful for just adjusting standing they say uh sitting is the new smoking you know so and then i also <laughs> got an ergo mat which is like a a foam mat that you stand on while you're working at your standing desk and That's then, what i'm doing right now if you guys are watching the, the podcast i'm oh and then i got some monitor mounts for the uh the speaker monitors and those clamp on to the desk on the sides of the desk so that it can go up and down and then one of my go-to things is having pen and paper on the desk. I love to just write like to-do lists and, you know, things to check off, uh, make sure that I get the things done for the day. Yeah. That's, that's funny that you bring that up because um, I have this thing and you know this every so often, or at least like every year, because uh, since we moved in, you know, I had everything set up a certain way and then we're coming up on a year being here at the, at this house. And I start to get the itch to just want to change stuff up. So like, you can kind of <laughs> see like this stuff that I have over here used to be on this side. And so I swapped those and I've been, uh, you know, cause I do have a, a sit stand desk, but it's just, I have so much heavy stuff on here. It, it's, it's, uh, the manual ones. So right, since it's right. not like the electric one, I can't just go up, up and down whenever I want. So I was like, well, what about just trying a standing setup? So it's kind of like, all right, cool. Come in here. You know, I can like stand if I want. I also have a, a stool that I just got that goes up and down as well. So if I just want to kind of like take a little of the, the weight off the legs and I'm also getting the same desk clamps, stand, the ones that you have in the back for any of mm -hmm. you watching. Uh, I wanted to get some of those too, because now my speakers are like down here. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's not the best when you're doing any mixing. I also raised my, uh, I have these uh, acoustic like RLX pads that I have on the wall. I actually raised these up a little bit too, because when I get my desk clamp monitor thingies, which I should be getting them probably here in a couple of hours, I'm going to bring those up and re resituate some stuff. And yeah, because I, I, I've always been about like kind of optimization and trying to be like ergonomical and, and just trying different things. Like, because sometimes I think it's easy to, to sit and then start to kind of like 
just get too comfortable. <laughs> like I feel like like when I'm standing and working, I almost have like a like this like little bit more of like urgency or something. Like you feel like, all right, I'm standing, I'm doing stuff. Like, all right, cool. Like you're kind of like in the group. It's just like it, it's a different mindset. It's a little, it's a little weird at first if you don't normally work standing up. It, it, there is like a a kind of getting used to it period. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, did you feel like that? Like, how did you feel when you first started standing and working? Was it a little like, well, this feels a little, a little different. Yeah, it does feel different. I like the main thing is just having the monitor in front of you right at eye level, very comfortable. Mm-hmm. So whether you're sitting or standing, you're kind of, you kind of have your keyboard and mouse in a similar spot um, at elbow height. And then you're looking straight ahead or slightly up, actually. uh, Huberman Lab, that podcast I was telling you about, he said, like, if you're looking slightly up at your monitor, you will be more awake. Interesting. Yeah, because the way mine is set up, you can, well, let's see. So, because mine, it's like, I have my monitor here. And then this one, I actually arced this one a little bit more. That's everyone's favorite question to ask you is what monitor do you use? Yeah, I know. It's like like every now and again, I'll always see that like, what's that weird, crazy, wide, stretched out monitor? <laughs> it's a Acer 49 Super uh, super Ultra Wide. But I, I have it a little bit tilted. So that way I'm kind of like looking down at it. So like when I'm because I have one of those foam mat pads, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like just naturally looking down and I have the monitor like slightly curved back. Nice. And then the monitor that I have up, it's slightly curved down. So it just any point I can, I could just look straight and then just kind of like shift with my eyes up or just go with my head up a little bit or look down. Like I'm not like breaking my neck doing anything. <laughs> yeah. Small movements. But yeah, it's just kind of like trying to keep it to like, all right, you know, even like standing, my arms are pretty much like about straight. Then I'm just kind of like looking up and down and then, you know, having the, the ultra white, honestly, like as far as like optimization or anything goes i mean it's like you can do the 227 inch monitors and uh, i remember when greg sound iron og convinced me to get that because he was like well how big's your desk and i was like oh it's about like 52 inches he's like get a 49 inch <laughs> ultra wide and i was like what are those and i looked it up and i'm like oh my god i was like that's so cool i don't i, I can't like get it out of my head <laughs> but it, it's it's nice just because you don't have that you know little bezel in the middle and it's just like you know i use it pretty much as two screens like i have like a tab over here and a tab over here so if i'm like doing something like copy and pasting stuff moving stuff around or just like having like one screen dedicated for a certain thing or i'll have like our you know work chat on one side stuff like that and uh, also the um the kensington trackball oh like, yes i, I know i know yeah, I know you're not you're not big into those, which they are weird at first because you're just like, what is this big red button thing? Like, should I not press that? Is my computer gonna blow up? <laughs> but it's uh, you know, having the four buttons because it's cool because it's technically like six buttons because there's a top, top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right. But you can also have it to where if you push both of them, it does another function as well. And you can have it to where it's app specific. So if I'm like, oh, I'm in, let's say Cubase. I can have, I have it to where my top right button is like a delete. Top right is delete. Top left is, uh, it brings up the instrument. So it'll open up, uh, like if I have a, an instrument track that's got contact, if I have that track track selected and I, I hit that, it'll just load it up so I can just go in quickly. I don't have to like move my mouse over, click on it to open up the, the instrument editor or nothing like that. And, and that kind of stuff is super helpful because it's just, uh, you know, and also using the stream deck, 
you know, for any of you that, that don't use that, honestly, it's really worth looking into. So it's like a really a combination, like even this new keyboard I got, it's got like a bunch of like macro buttons on the side that you can use for other stuff too. So it, and it's, it's RGB like, and it's, we call that tactical tactical tacticalness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, I really, it's, it's for the RGB. I don't even care about any of the other buttons. <laughs> this whole room is for colored lights. Yeah, if, if you can't tell. Yeah. Colors can be inspirational as well. Something about like just being in a room with white walls drives me insane. <laughs> I can't I'm glad you're it. not here then. Uh, do you have any oh, other God. studio optimizations? <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, recently just kind of going with the standing setup, that's been really fun. Honestly, and like I used to have another monitor on my desk too. I've really been trying to just get rid of stuff that I don't need. Downsize. Optimization can just be as simple as getting rid of stuff too. Like, do you really need all these things? Like you have all these things plugged into, you know, USB slots and you're like, I don't really use that. <laughs> right. Like, you know, so I used to have a monitor here, but I was just like, eh, I kind of wanted to like have a little bit more of a cleaner desk and, you know, having a, the super ultra wide and another 4k monitor. I mean, that's really all I need. I mean, you can get by even just with one monitor. It's, it's funny how you start with something so simple and then it just grows and grows. Like you probably just had the one monitor and then you had the side one mm -hmm. and then you're like, Oh, let me put one up here. And then it's just like, it's so easy for things to get out of control. Yeah. And you're just like, like, do I need all this stuff? And over time you're like, well, it kind of feels like you do need it. Cause you're like, man, like, Everything works so well. Well, eventually, the, yeah, the pendulum swings the other way, like Junkie XL selling off a bunch of his synths. He's like, I just don't use this stuff, and I, I wish I did, but I know someone else would use this more. Yeah, I mean, for me, when it, like when it, like if I was if someone was to say anything about like, oh, like how do you like optimize stuff? It's really just about like having what you need at arm's reach. You know, like oh, like at any point I could just go over here and make a change. You know, if I'm like recording with the camper or if I need to like adjust something on my audio interface, I mean, if I, all my MIDI controllers that I would ever use are, are pretty much here. Mm -hmm. Like I have my keyboard on a, on a, a Z stand that's as high as it can go. So it's pretty much going to always still play on the keyboard. But yeah, I got the, I got the really seaboard. I got the, the native instruments machine, which is cool, especially if you're doing anything with percussion. Like I, I did a video talking about using it in MIDI mode mm -hmm. once they did that upgrade because, or once it, or as an update, because uh, I, for some reason in MIDI mode, I couldn't really use it. You have to use it with the software, but now I can just use it just like any other MIDI controller. So I use that. And then I also have the, uh, the Touche SE. So, I mean, I, I don't really use a lot of crazy MIDI controllers. It's more of just like, if I want to switch stuff up, I also have the Artifon hanging. Must be nice. I'll borrow it from you at some point. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, it's just cool to have other things around, even if you use predominantly one thing, like, oh, maybe I want to switch it up, you know, but just kind of having things like, oh, I could just go over here and mess around with that. And, you know, but I mean, it's not necessarily stuff that you need to do the job or anything like that. It's just like, you know, it's like seeing different guitars and you're like, oh, that one's cool. That one's a guitar, but it's got like a whammy bar on it. Or that one's cool. You know, like, like the Evertune bridge that I got on my guitar. It's like, it's a guitar. I have a few of them. You know, you can see I have <laughs> on the walls, but what about this? That does something a little bit different. Like this is a MIDI controller, but it does things a little bit differently. Like with the MPE technology or, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So, but uh, yeah, if there's anything I could recommend, honestly, the stream deck is Seriously, it's something I've seen anyone who I know who's 
gotten one in their hands has benefited from it in some way, unless you're just a, like a key command warrior and, and you just like know every little like control alt shift rf2 bolt like if you're if you're one of those guys that's cool but i forget every key command i ever made <laughs> you know so i mean having something with an icon that i could be like oh that does that boom you know i even have uh turn off my lights nice wow because i found out that you can uh with the the lie effects i can actually like change so if i'm like oh i want to like do you know just or normal lighting or you know i could switch it up so that's pretty cool. Just, you know, have that option of just doing stuff like that. Have your own rave inside your studio. Boom. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So we should talk about this week's uh, library release. We just released a library called High Fives, which is our founder, Mike Peasley, hand, mouth, and body percussion. And for those who don't know, Mike Peasley is the founder and owner of the co- company. And he has two co-founders. Greg Stevens and Chris Marshall, and they are who Craig and I work for. They are the masterminds. They are the people running the show. We're just the faces. Uh, But the library has mouth drums. It has snaps, claps, all kinds of body percussion. It's very useful for a multitude of genres, and I made a really fun uh, beatboxing kind of uh like runway walk style cue with it and you can watch my composing video on that yeah yeah definitely check out the the composing video for that that is funny that track was like stuck in my head for <laughs> a little while when i after i was listening to it i caught myself just like dun, 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 dun. yeah it's it's just like all the different types of b- body percussion you honestly would ever need you got real creative with it yeah yeah it's like it's not just like snaps and claps you know it's like different variations on you know like flicking the side of your mouth you know like <laughs> it's like every little like chest thumps yeah like every avenue of body percussion that you'd probably ever need you know totally and it's just so it's, it's pretty cool and like this is like something that you know for any of you who are owners of even like like anti-drum machine where there's a lot of percussive stuff like that like stomps and claps and like sliding your shoe on on the inside of a like hardwood floor gymnasium playing basketball or something you know, like it's it's just one of those. Like it's it's this is one of those libraries. I think it's just like good to have mm-hmm. because you never know when they're like you know. Especially I think for like a lot of commercial music, you know, you'll hear like totally. You know, like you'll hear all that kind of stuff in in those types of things. So I think it's one of those like libraries you, you want to kind of keep in your arsenal because it will come up. You know, where like you can totally use like snaps and claps and pops and there's even kiss sounds on there, smacks. <laughs> beatboxes you know it's a it's a i mean because we also have the beatbox library too which is you know a whole another exploration into like mouth percussion mm-hmm. but yeah it's a really fun library you know and it's on sale right now for only 15 dollars. regularly it's 29 yeah so definitely get it now now's the time uh next week we will be having chris cutting on the podcast and he is a world-class demo composer he always composes one of my favorite cues for our libraries he's been working hard for a long time at least five years and uh, so we're excited to ask him about how he composes and tips and tricks so tune in next week for that and i think that's it craig you got anything else uh, no, yeah, just make sure to subscribe to the podcast. You know, you can, it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast platform that you probably listen to. I mean, those are the main ones. 
If but you're listening here, subscribe. Yeah, if you're listening, subscribe to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. <laughs> and if you can, leave a review. Really helps Ooh. as far as visibility and helping it, you know, build more and more. It's, you know. Only if it's a positive review, though. Yeah. yeah no one stars, please. Come on. Five stars. Help us <laughs> out. I'm not asking for much. Just five stars. Right. But yeah. But yeah, make sure to leave a review, too. If you like it, let us know. Let us know what you guys think. All right. I'll catch you next week, Craig. All righty. See All ya. Right. Peace.